0: Hi, and welcome to another great life-impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. While you're doing that, we're going to pray. Now, Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, and uh, we are so thankful, Lord, that um The communion around your table, Lord, for us now is just a taste of something greater to come. Now, Lord, we we do this, Lord, not only in remembrance of you, Lord, but we do it as we wait for your return. And we look forward to that day where we will sit and feast at the banqueting table. And at the head of the table will be you, Lord, And I doubt that anyone would be looking at the food because their eyes would be taken up with you. So I look forward to that that day, Lord. And I'm sure everyone here this morning does too. So we just want to thank you for that. We want to thank you this morning for your word, which is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And we would ask, Lord, that you would shed light on it today for us. As we come to the letter of Colossians, uh, chapter 2, we want to know, Not only what Paul said, but what you say. And so teach us, Lord, what you mean and what you say this morning. Illuminate your word to us, O Holy Spirit, that we may gain understanding. And from that will be an outflow of gratitude and fruit, Lord. So we pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're with me in Colossians chapter 2, and Paul opens up this chapter and he says, For I want you to know. Do you see that? You might have it different in your translation, uh, but in the NASB, New American Standard Bible, it says, For I want you to know. That's how he begins chapter 2. And so the Apostle Paul begins here that way, For I want you to know. And what we need to know is this it is to their minds he wants to engage it's to their minds that he wants to grab and engage with rather than their emotions the greek word ido carries the the idea to turn the eyes and engage the mind that's the, the greek word for know there it's to turn the eyes and engage the mind and so paul wants the apostle paul here wants to engage the minds of the readers, the original readers as well as well as the, the contemporary readers today. And this is a point really worth noting that sound biblical Christianity is first an engagement of the mind before it's an engagement of the emotions. The mind must first be engaged rather than the emotions. It's not that emotions aren't important. But our emotions must be guided and they must be shaped by Scripture. Too often people are led astray by their emotions. And they come to the Bible with their emotions. And their emotions sometimes can tell lies on them. And so we don't want that to happen. Some will determine that the truth of Scripture can be determined by their feelings. If I feel that's right, then it's right. If I feel it's wrong, then it, it can't be right. They will come to difficult passages and conclude that it doesn't feel right, therefore it can't mean what it actually says. This happened to me the other day when I was speaking to a man. He questioned what I believed about God sending people to hell. I responded, oh, people don't need God's help to get them to hell. They're doing an amazing job themselves without his help. He looked at me a bit puzzled, and so I went on to explain that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, that even our righteous deeds, the good things we do, are like filthy rags to God. He then responded by saying, yes, but God, god is a loving god therefore he loves the whole world and so he can't send people to hell because he loves everyone it's not very loving to send people to hell well, i said we must also remember that he is a holy god that he is a righteous god and that he is a just god and that there is not an innocent person that ends up in hell For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And I also quoted Matthew chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen, where it says, There enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Then the way that leads to destruction is wide. And then he says, and those who enter by it are many. And I continue to say that the problem is that those without Christ, the unsaved, are headed to hell. The only thing stopping them from getting there at this point and at this moment is the breath in their lung. But you take that away. And without the grace of God alone, through Christ alone, the next breath that they will take will be the hottest breath that they've ever known. Therefore, the real question is how do we turn them? How do we turn those people? Well he turned to me and said, Oh, I can't cope with that. That's not the God that I know. It doesn't feel right. You see, he had determined the true character of God based on his on his feelings, on his emotions. and not based on the truth we find in Scripture. Oh, he's a loving God. There's no doubt about that. God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. What an act of love. But he is more than just a loving God. He is a holy God most of all. There is none like him. He is a righteous God. Everything he does is right. When he judges you as a sinner and condemned to hell, is he wrong? No, he is right because he is righteous. And he is a just God because people who end up in hell get their just desserts. Therefore, the real question is how do we turn them? And so, but, uh, sound biblical Christianity is first an engagement of the mind before it's an engagement of the emotion. It's another thing you want to know if, if it's not hitting the emotion, then it's just intellectual. If if the mind is engaged by Scripture, but there's no fruit, it's just an intellectual study. It means nothing. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Piercing even to the bone in the marrow and to the intent and the thoughts of the heart. Does the Word of God do that? Does it get here to here? And do you see you working it out that way? Do others see you working it out that way? That's the real test of whether the Word of God is at work in you because it bears fruit. Things happen. You do things not to earn your salvation, but because you were saved. Faith Without works is dead faith. It's intellectual faith. Even the demons tremble with their belief. And we know they won't end up in heaven. But they have belief. So we ought to be careful about just engaging the mind without the emotion. The emotion must be engaged too, and the Word of God does that. But it doesn't just sit there and do nothing, because it bears fruit. And so, sound biblical Christianity is first an engagement of the mind before it's an engagement of the emotions. You know, that is why we begin our services here with an appeal to Scripture. You notice that, don't you? We always begin with Scripture. Why? Because we want to engage your mind before we engage your emotions. We want the the Word of God to engage your mind and then hit your emotion. Like this is always saying, we we shouldn't have to whip you up to worship. The Word of God should be doing that with the Holy Spirit in you. There should be an outflow of that. When you see those words, the Word of God, it's like God talking, isn't it? It It's His Word. And we put it up on the screen there so you can see Him talking to you. So you know it's Him talking to you. And you think about that. The Word of God talking to you. Remember what happened when He talked to empty space. Even that moved. He said, let there be light. And the light appeared. And he said, let the water separate from the dry ground. And guess what happened? It did. You see how powerful the word of God is? If you don't, then there's something wrong. There's, if you don't, if you've never sensed that, if you've never got that, then there's something absolutely wrong there. Because it is a powerful word. Because it's his word. So it should engage the emotions. If it doesn't, then you need to pray that it does. You know, we shouldn't have a Stoic Christianity Christianity should never be stoic. You know what stoic means? It should be alive. It should be living. It should be vibrant. It should be full of passion. It should be full of enthusiasm. Why? Christ, you were made alive. No, I often think about that, you know, and Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God by his great mercy made you alive. And you think about that, it's a dead person. No life in that person. And all of a sudden, they're made alive. They knew they died, but now they're made alive. Imagine that. You know, you read stories about people who, who, who you know, have uh, an experience where they die on the operating table or they die of something and, and they, they're dead. And then they're made alive again. And they can't but be thankful for the life that they've been given. And many of them just go out and they say, I'm going to live life to its fullest christians that's us to live life to its fullest because we've been made alive born again we should never be stoic people we should never be dead people we should be alive and we should live like we are alive and so the the engagement of the mind engages the emotions we don't want a stoic Christianity, but we don't want a frenzied Christianity either, where it's just all about the emotions and the experience and the feelings. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones wrote a wonderful book called "Joy Unspeakable," and uh, and he tackled that issue about the difference between you know um, stoic orthodoxy and frenzied christianity and he said you know they're both both unhelpful but they are both needed the Christian should never be stoic but they should never be frenzied the two should go together but the frenzied should always be shaped and guided by the word it's the Word of God that should be guiding our emotions and our feelings. We don't come to the Bible with our feelings to determine truth. We don't come to the Bible with our experiences. See, our experiences don't determine the truth of God. I often hear people do this because, because I this happened to me, therefore it's, this is what that's saying. You know, I, I had a vision. Bible talks about a vision, therefore it confirms my vision. But we never come to the Bible with any kind of experiences that we've experienced and say, therefore, my experience makes this true. No, the Word of God makes our experience, determines our experiences, whether they're true or not. Never the other way around. This is truth. Not my experience. My experience can be, you know, rorted with, with selfishness, with sin. And usually they are. But the word of God is sinless. It is perfect. It's sweeter than honey, tripping from a honeycomb. And therefore, sound biblical Christianity is first an engagement of the mind before it, is an engagement of the emotions. You know, that that's why we begin our services with an appeal to Scripture, because it's our minds that we want to engage first. And we want to engage our minds with the Word of God so that the Word of God informs our minds and thus affecting our emotions. Our emotions don't determine truth because our emotions lead us astray often. So we never confirm truth by our feelings, but instead we study the Scriptures and trust the Bible to be true Whether we like it or not, is that your experience? Whether you like it or not, whether it agrees with you or not, are you happy to come to the Bible and read it for what it says and go away thinking, well, I don't like what it says, but that's what it says. That's how we must always come to the Bible. And then we dig deeper into the scriptures by looking at the whole Bible and weighing up it weighing up scripture with scripture. One verse doesn't explain the whole Bible but the whole Bible explains the whole the one verse amen And so that's what we need to to know as we study the Bible. And so the Apostle Paul appeals to the minds of the Colossians, for I want you to know. We might also note the Apostle's concern here. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And so he was concerned for them, and he felt it necessary to inform them of some important truths. And we see that. His concern for them was deep. In fact, it was a great struggle. That word struggle is the Greek word agon from where we get the word agony. And so we might say that he he agonized over them. But what was what was it that caused him such agony? Or what was it that caused him such a great struggle in terms of his concern for them? Well, if you remember, the church at Colossae were under attack from two groups of false teachers. One group were bent on minimizing the supremacy of Christ and the other were doing all they could to minimize the sufficiency of Christ. One group was trying to bring the supremacy of Christ down. The other was saying, no, Jesus is insufficient. The philosophers with their empty deception and Gnostic-type views sought to bring Christ down to being merely a man. Merely a man and not supreme. And then the religious Jews with their legalistic views viewed Christ's saving work as being insufficient and thus demanded that people act a certain way or they do certain things. You know, this is no different to the the Jehovah Witnesses. Yesterday morning we had a knock at the door by two lovely ladies. And as always, I opened the door. (laughs) They made the point that I was Maori, therefore I must have some kind of spirituality. (laughs) Were they in for a shot? (laughs) I replied, yes, I'm a Christian. And they proceeded to ask if if I had any questions I would like them to answer. (laughs) So I asked them, how would you as a Jehovah Witness say I could be saved? If you were here, remember the, the video we watched about the Mormons? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. There's no other way. But you must do something first. How were the Jehovah's Witnesses going to reply to that question? What were they going to say? Well, you know what they are, they, they said? They said through Jesus Christ, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one can go to the Father except by him. Sounds a bit like the Mormons, doesn't it? and then guess what i said wow that's what i believe that's that's what i believe as a as a christian orthodox christian i, I believe that then they continued on with their explanation Guess what they said but you must first Do something in order to receive it. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and who knows who else are saying good things, but what are they doing with it? Adding to it what the Bible doesn't add to it. Yes, Jesus is the way, but you must first do something. Whoa. I said, but you just told me that Jesus is the way. You said Jesus is the way to the Father. I said, yes, but he has only shown us that it is possible to do what is necessary to be saved. Oh, so Jesus is just an example, a model, a pattern. Yes. So really what you're saying is that salvation is dependent on what I do. Yes. Salvation is dependent, according to a Jehovah Witness, on what you do. So do you see that the problem that the church faced in Colossae in the first century is still lingering in the 21st century today? Yes, Jesus, but as soon as you put a but there, you've changed the whole theology. As soon as you put a but there, you've changed the whole gospel. It's either Christ alone or it's not Christ at all. The JWs are similar to the philosophers of Colossae in that they minimise the supremacy of Christ by suggesting that he is merely a good man, but not God. Therefore, he makes salvation possible. He makes it possible, but not effectual. And they are also like the religious Jews in that day, And that they believe it's about keeping the rules. That's what they told me, that that, that they have to keep doing things, that they have to obey the commands, that they have to do good works. But even in doing that, they are not guaranteed anything. They keep the rules and try their best to do the commands, which... They believe truly saves a person. Therefore, it's their effort. It's their effort rather than Christ's which becomes effectual. Simply that means that Christ is insufficient, that he is not sufficient to save. He is just a pattern, a model, an example of how we are to live. And therefore, end up like him in glory at the, the right hand of the Father who is in heaven? Do you see the fallacy in all of that? Do you see the religiosity in all of that? I hope you do. Do you, see, do you see how it? there's no freedom from sin in that? It is so binding a person to hell and setting them free by grace to heaven. That's why we don't preach that here. That's why we don't believe that here. That's why we're happy that the, we're thankful that the reformers fought against that. And they said it's by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, That a man or a woman is saved. Not by anything they do. Otherwise, that would nullify grace. And grace would no longer be the unmerited favor of God. It would be the merited favor of God. And you wouldn't be able to use that word grace. I said, you know what? You don't need Jesus. He's just an example of what we must do. I said, yeah, that's what it comes down to. He makes it possible, but it's up to us. So the Apostle Paul was deeply concerned for the church, as I am deeply concerned for the church, and his concern was that the church would not be led astray by philosophical ideas, by philosophy, You know what philosophy is? It's man's theology. It's a man theology. That's what philosophy is. It's about man. It's about man's ideas, what man can do, what man must do. It's all man-centered. Do You have a man-centered gospel. Do you have a man-centered theology? Then you're probably a philosopher. They're great ideas, but they are not sound biblical teaching. And so his concern was that the church would not be led astray by philosophers, by philosophical ideas, and by religious rules, by the legalists, and by those who hang laws on people that they can't even keep themselves, laws that aren't even in the Bible, commands that aren't even in the Bible, commands that Jesus never even spoke. That's why he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, I say this so that no one, no one will delude you with persuasive argument. That's what philosophers do. To try and persuade you with cleverly thought-out arguments. Therefore, what is it he specifically wants them to know in the context of the onslaught of false teaching? What does Paul want these people to know? And, and, and by association, what does he want us to know? You know, we, we do not think that we aren't in times of, Great false teaching. The gospel has been minimized down to a man-centered gospel where it's all about you. God came for you to make you better, to make you healthier, to make you rich, to give you a better lifestyle, to heal your your broken body. now God came to save you. He came to save you. Out of this broken, sinful will. To be with him in glory. That's what he came to do. And the false gospel offers you none of that. false gospel says you can have heaven now. You can have it all now. Like Des said, the best is yet to come. But the man sent the gospel says, no, the best is now. You can have it now. true gospel says, no, the best is yet to come. We've been studying through 1 Peter. If you haven't read 1 Peter, by all means, go ahead and read it. If you're someone struggling here this morning with with some kind of issue, with some kind of health issue, with some kind of persecution, with some kind of struggle as a Christian, read 1 Peter and hear what Peter says about your struggles, about your pain, about your persecution. He says, you know what, even if you are harmed for doing good, even if you should suffer for for righteousness' sake, you, Christian, are blessed, for it is the will of God, for it is the will of God that you should suffer for doing what is right. If you are suffering for doing what is right, You are doing the will of God. We ask, well, what's the will of God for me? There it is, to suffer for doing what is right here on this planet. You tell that to a non-Christian. You give them that gospel. And you watch them run. And so the false gospel doesn't mention that. The false gospel would rather make people feel like they can have heaven now. Get them in the door. Grow our church. Build my portfolio. Get their hands raised. Make them say a prayer. How am I going to do that? I'm going to sell them a gospel they can't refuse. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow. Is the way that leads to everlasting life. Narrow. The gospel, folks, is very narrow. It is not wide, it is very narrow. So you tell them that. You want to be a Christian? You're going to have to know that you will suffer, but you will be blessed. If you're not suffering here this morning as a Christian, Why? Why aren't you suffering? For doing what is right, not for doing what is wrong. Why aren't you suffering? Why aren't you being persecuted for preaching truth? Especially if the Bible, God's Word says it is His will us, that we should suffer. Hands up if you don't like that. We've got a number of, yep, got some honest people here and it's okay to be honest. Because that's another thing the Bible tells us we should be honest. I'll be honest too. But you know what? When I come to the Bible... And God says that's what will happen. I don't allow my emotions or my feelings to dictate the truth. I say that's what it says, that's what it means. To suffer for doing what is right is God's will, and I am blessed. I am blessed. Not looking for heaven here on earth. Keeping my eyes on heaven, the true heaven. That's what Paul says in Chapter 3, doesn't he? Flip over to chapter 3. He says, therefore, if you have been, verse 1, raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things on earth above. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind there. You see how Paul wants to engage the mind. Chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind there. So that's what we do. In our suffering, we set our minds there. Therefore, what is it specifically he wants them to know in the context of the onslaught of false teaching? Well, he says that their hearts may be encouraged. The word heart can refer to the emotions, but in light of the context, it's better understood to refer to the mind. And we know already that the heart can refer to the mind in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, as a man thinks, thinks in his heart. So we know that the word heart can also refer to the mind because that's where we think. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So not only does he want to engage their minds, but he also wants to encourage He wants to encourage their minds. That word encourage is better understood to refer to strength. It comes from the Greek word parakaleo, which basically means to call to one side. William Barclay cites an example of parakaleo. Uh, He writes this. He said "There, there was a Greek regiment or Greek army which had lost heart and was utterly dejected. The general sent a leader to talk to the regiment, after which courage was reborn. So the the leader goes to this regiment who are dejected, they're feeling dispirited, they're they're just feeling defeated and and hopeless. And the general sends a, a leader there, one of his leaders to go and talk to them. And whatever the man said, it rebirthed that regiment and gave them more courage and that body of dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. That is what the Apostle Paul means by parakaleo here. It's the Apostle's prayer that the church may be filled with this kind of courage, this kind of strength, that they would be strengthened in their minds. Against the onslaught of false teaching to the to the point that they would stand firm against it. It's also helpful to know that this is a passive verb. Therefore, rather than the Colossians doing the strengthening of their own minds, the strengthening is being done to them. <laughs> And someone is coming alongside them and strengthening their minds. Yes, Paul. Yes, Epaphras. Through the preaching, proclaiming of the word. Through the expounding of scripture. The explaining of scripture. The reading of scripture. Through prayer. To strengthen their minds. But how is one's mind strengthened against the onslaught of false teaching when those men aren't around? Well, let me say that it's first a work of the Lord in any case. The strengthening of a Christian's mind is first a work of the Lord. That's why it's passive. It's being done to you. First the work of the Lord in the mind and in the heart of his people and then the outflow is an appeal to the Lord first through prayer and then to his word. But the work begins with the Lord and it continues through sanctification by the Lord. That was Jesus' prayer, wasn't it? That if believers would be sanctified. And so in verses 6 to 7, we read this. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And so the appeal is to people who have received Christ. Amen. That's the appeal to people who have received Christ. And how are we to know they have received Christ? What does it say? So walk in him. Because they walk in him. Do you walk in Christ? Is Christ supreme and all sufficient for you? Is either constant thought and talk on your heart and on your mouth. Walk means live. Your life is to, to express Christ, display Christ. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, instructs the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12. So then. My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, here they are walking, the beloved are walking in obedience, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. So not just doing it for for show, not doing it just to be a people pleaser or, or to pretend in front of people. He says, but even when I'm not looking, you're doing this. So not as in my presence only, but now much more when I'm not there, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so the Philippines were challenged to work out their salvation, how? With fear and with trembling. I don't mind if you see that as, you know, these people need to be afraid about whether they're saved or not. I think we should be all working out our salvation. Yes, we have confidence in the work of Christ, but let's not have confidence in our own work. That leads to religion. Our confidence should be in what Christ has done that his work is effectual to save, but mine is not. Yes, we are guaranteed and promised that we will be with him. Paul says here, work out your salvation. Are you working it out? Is it rolling around in your head every time you sin? Are you going, wow, I don't know if I'm really saved. What if I'm not saved? What must I do? Repent. Turn away from that. Turn to Christ. The only guarantee that we have here this morning, folks, is Christ and his word. You know, I hate to say this, but there may not be some people here this morning who'll be knocking on the gates of heaven. Let's you work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. It means be serious. Work it out seriously. Don't count on what you do as being what is needed. Don't put confidence in your work, but put confidence in the work of Christ. And we can do that. So, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this means a couple of things. First, it means that they were to figure out whether they were saved. And second, they were to work or walk as people who are saved. The walking as people who are genuinely saved. But here's the interesting thing that Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we see here an active command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but with a passive response. For it is God who is at work in you, So who was doing the work? Well, before you answer, we would have to say they were doing the work, weren't they? They were doing it. They were obeying and and, and they were working it out, not only in Paul's presence, but even when he was absent. So we would have to say they were doing it. But then Paul goes on to confuse us by saying that, no, it was a work of God. (laughs) God was doing the work. Do you see that? Does that confuse you? But That's what it says. He he gives them the command, work it out. Well, walk your talk. You say you're a Christian, well, let's see it. Walk it. And he goes along and he says, but guess what? It's God who is at work in you. (laughs) You're not going to get the credit for all of this. He is, because our boast is not in us, but it's in the Lord. You see what happens when we try and take the credit from him and we say, oh, no, I did it. We boast in ourselves. And that's biblically wrong. It is false teaching. So who was doing the work? Well, we, like we said, they were doing the work but God was doing the work also. Now, I don't know about you and this this is not to relinquish any responsibility on our behalf but I am so thankful that the Bible teaches me that God is at work in me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I don't know if that brings you comfort or brings you strength but it sure brings me comfort and strength. I would hate to think what Christianity would be like if every command in the Bible were an active verb, present tense, which means you do it continually. As a habit of your life, you do it. That is where, where to keep those commands continually. Could you imagine that? Your salvation is dependent on you actively keeping those commands all the time. That's how a lot of religious people teach. That is not grace. That is not mercy. That is not love. That you keep the commands all the time. That would be active. I'm so thankful that the Bible has many commands which are passive. Amen? Why? Because if we're honest, we fall short. We were to keep those commands continually unaided. I doubt any of us could be saved. In fact, I banked my money on it. In fact, the JWs and the Mormons and others like them believe they can I spoke to those ladies yesterday. I said, "Wow, I'd love to hook you up with a camera that can read your thoughts, that can read your heart, that can see what you do, every word that comes out of your mouth 24-7 for the next 52 weeks. And they just went quiet. They knew what I was saying. You can't keep those commands and don't lie about it. You are a fallen person. You are not Jesus. And so we should be not only humble, but we should be grateful that God's commands are often passive. One Peter 1.13, I think it is, or fourteen or fifteen. Fifteen. Be holy. It's a command with a continual effect. Can you keep that? Have you kept it nonstop, 24-7, from the day you were saved to right now? Have you been holy, perfectly holy? Because that's what that command demands. Have you? Aren't you thankful that it's a passive command, that it's done to you? And so the the next verse after that says, You shall be holy because I am holy. Praise the Lord for passive commands. Otherwise, we would all be religious people earning our way to heaven, but not even getting there. In Colossians 2.7, we see the passive nature of this verse. When we read this, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. There are four passive verbs here and one active. The four passive verbs are, number one, having been firmly rooted we might want to consider the parable of the sower and the seed which fell on good ground and unlike the other seeds, this seed took root and bore fruit. And Jesus went on to explain in, in that passage, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now how was the seed able to take root? Because the sower is the Lord. And Paul explained to the Corinthians that as one plants, another waters, yet it is God who gives increase. It's God who gives the increase. Number two, being built up in him. Again in Matthew, and in chapter 16 and verse 18, the Lord says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. It's passive. Who's building the church? Not you. The Lord is. He is building his church. Not by bricks and mortar. We're talking the invisible church, the spiritual church. He is building it. says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Therefore the Lord is at work in us. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, they do it in vain. Unless it's the Lord building this house, Anything we do apart from him is done in vain. It ends up being just vain, and it's a vain attempt. It's like grasping for the wind. There's no substance in it. And the third passive verb is an established in your faith. These are passive verbs, people. These are things that are done. You don't do these. You can't do these. It's done to you. That word established means to stand firm. And in the sense of it being passive, it refers to the fact that although you may be rocked, or as the Apostle Paul put it to the, the Ephesians, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men or women, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, or you may have moments of doubt, even just like Thomas doubted, yet the Lord is faithful and he has established your feet firmly in the true gospel of salvation. So that you might say along with the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing, not that I might begin my salvation nor complete it, that he that is God who began a good work in me will complete it at the day of Christ. He who began the good work will complete it at the day of Christ. And all the in-between. If he began it, there's no reason to think that he won't continue to work it. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And number four just says, you were instructed... So where did their instruction come from? Well, it most likely came from Epaphras, who was the pastor there at Colossae and and, and Laodicea. However, we must remember that any study of the scripture is only intellectual unless the Lord illuminates his word to our minds and our hearts. Unless the Lord reveals the truth, it still remains a mystery. The word of God should not be a mystery, Christian. To you it should never be a mystery to you there are some things that are a mystery but the mysteries are things that aren't contained in scripture they are things that you don't need to know everything in scripture is contained in scripture for you to know that's why it's called the revelation of god god has revealed himself through his word to us You will never know God by looking up at that sun all day long. You will never know what God is like. The only thing you will know is what it's like to get sunburned. You will never know God intimately by looking at the sun, by your feelings, by looking at the stars, by the touch of the grass, by the comfort of your friends. They don't compare to the God of Scripture. The only sure way you can know him is through his word. And it's no mystery. We have it revealed to us, 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, so that we might know him. Otherwise, it's just all intellectual unless the Lord illuminates his word to us. And then the active verb overflowing with gratitude. Gratitude. What is gratitude? Being thankful. Being grateful. Actually, it starts with humility. If you're not humble, you're not humbled by all of this then you'll never truly be grateful. Your gratitude will not truly overflow. Because true gratitude begins with humility. Proud people, they're not very thankful, are they? Proud people are people who believe they've done it. It's, it's, I did it. but they're never truly grateful. It's only a person who is very humble, who recognizes that they couldn't do it, they didn't do it. Then you will see an overflow of gratitude. Brothers and sisters, is that the outflow of your heart? Is that the overflow of your heart? Are you overflowing with gratitude to the Lord for what he has done? I just think that when you understand the true grace of God, what grace truly means, on its own, no buts, but that God, by his grace, saved you. Not because of who you are, what you said, or what you've done. Because what you only deserved was his wrath. Get that in your mind. What we deserve is the wrath of God, not the grace of God for all have sinned. You know what? It is a religious person who doesn't get it. It's a religious person who doesn't see how sinful they really are. Therefore, it is a religious person who is not going to be humble And just full of pride saying, well, I'm good enough. Look at what I did. Look at what I said. But true grace comes not because you did anything or said anything, but it comes because you have a need. And only God can meet that need. Only God could do the work that was necessary to effect your salvation to satisfy his own anger and wrath against you. Folks, if that doesn't humble you as you think about that, I honestly don't know what will. You don't deserve to be saved, no matter what you've done or what you've said. You only deserve the wrath of God. But by grace are you saved, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no man here will boast except that their boast be in Christ. And so, let me say this false teaching will teach you otherwise. It will say you are good enough, it will say that God came down just specifically for you because he loved you so much that he couldn't live without you. And it will tell you that he's so invested in you that he won't want you to get broken or hurt. That he only wants to bless you with wealth and health. Oh, if you're sick this morning, God can't be blessing you. Amen? And you will go to churches who talk like that. How horrible is that to say to a person? You're sick here this morning. Trust the Lord. If you should die today, the best is yet to come. Don't get stuck on thinking this is heaven. Oh, it's not bad for you. Why aren't you suffering? That is God's will for you. In the battles in life King David faced, he penned these psalms, Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God. Search me and search each and every one of us, O God, this morning and know our hearts and try us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us, Lord, in the everlasting way. David's words here follow on from his accusation of certain men who, as he wrote, for they speak against you wickedly, Lord. Your enemies, Lord, take your name in vain. Do I not hate them? O Lord, those who hate you, Lord. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. Is that the heart of an evil man? No, that is the heart of a man who is so in love with Jesus that if anyone should speak against Jesus, he can't help but be angry and upset that they should take his name in vain, that they should speak about him in a wicked way. Says, I count them my enemies. And you could liken these men to those at Colossae, and just as David organized, uh, agonized, so too did the Apostle Paul. In Psalm 40, verse 1 to 2, he says, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land. Shelter in a time of storm. Making my footsteps firm. So how do you strengthen the mind? And the heart of those who are facing the onslaught of ongoing false teaching. Let me tell you, you're not escaping it. There is much false teaching going on today. Just read your papers, newspapers, turn the TV on, listen to certain preachers and teachers. Listen to other Christians and see what they say. (laughs) And you'll be surprised. You will be surprised. What is it? How do we have our minds strengthened? Well, it's the Lord who strengthens our minds, first and foremost, in Christ. In Christ, folks. If it's not in Christ, and it's not strong. And you will be tossed around with every wind of doctrine. You will believe what the Mormons believe. Grace, but yes, you have to do something or say something. It's not grace alone, but grace is just a way, makes, makes the way possible. But you have to do something first. Is that the grace you hold to? Is it? That's the grace the Mormons hold to. That's the grace the Jehovah Witnesses hold to. That's the grace all religions hold to except true Christianity. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in the same boat with the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses when Jesus comes. (laughs) I want to be on the boat to glory. Amen. And the only way is through Christ alone. Christ alone. Strengthen your minds in Christ. Be satisfied that he satisfies every need, that he is sufficient for every spiritual need you have, particularly for your salvation. He doesn't make the way possible. He doesn't just make the way possible for you to be saved. That's ridiculous. That is false teaching. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is not the possibility. He is the way. Sufficient. Effective. Otherwise, there is no other way. So this morning, as you think about that and as you contemplate your own walk in the Lord, because that's what it what Paul said, isn't it? If you have received Christ, what are you to do? Walk in him. Are you walking in the Lord? Are you walking in Christ? Or are you walking in your own strength? Are you counting and relying on what you do and judging yourself next to your neighbor, next to the person in church here, or in front of you or behind you saying, I'm doing better than they are, so I must be on the right path. No, look to Christ. Compare yourself to Christ. Don't compare yourself to the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you or wherever in this building or out of this building. But compare yourself to Jesus Christ. He is the standard. And you watch yourself fall short when you look to him. And you watch yourself being humbled as you look to him. And you watch yourself cry out for his grace and be thankful for it. When you look at the person next to you and you measure your, your Christianity according to what they're doing and by their fallenness and sinfulness and you feel look pretty great, That only builds pride in you. That only builds pride in your heart. And what comes after pride? A great big fall. It's like the house that was built on sand. It came down with a mighty fall. Don't build your house on sand. Build it on Christ. He is the rock. He is the way. We're going to invite the music team up now. We're going to close with our last song. Lord, I lift your name on high. (laughs) Remember, the word affects the emotions, not our emotions determining the word. So we have opportunity here to lift the name of the Lord on high, not to whip you up, but trust that the word has whipped you up this morning. The Lord is whipping you up for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. to Colossae, thank you, Lord, that it challenges us. We don't want to be comfortable people, Lord. We don't want to be puffed up people, Lord. We don't want to be people, Lord, who are made to feel like we are doing such a, a great job, and yet we are not. We want to have the truth penetrate our ears, our minds, and our hearts, Lord, because, Lord, there is much work to do. You said that we are blessed if we are persecuted for your name's sake. Oh, Lord, I don't see any of us here this morning being persecuted for your name's sake. Maybe there are some. I don't see a lot, Lord. Lord, help us to, to achieve that, Lord, by your grace and mercy, that we might lose our life in order that we would gain it. So, Lord, bless us, we pray. Help us, Lord, not to just stir in your word, but to be people who want to, Lord, you you say there is now no condemnation for those people in Christ Jesus. Therefore, every Christian in here should not feel condemned but convicted. And who does the convicting? The Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we, we trust that you are convicting us. Therefore, we have work to do in order to repent. And in order to do the work, we need your help. So help us, we pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.